What? I'm, I'm not naming any names, uh, but Nate hit the button. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little early. So early for the button, isn't it? Yep. So reminder for me, panelist links for our new friends. Panelist for links for new friends. Mm -hmm. 57 minutes of lovely banter. And prep. Great. Like there's only 11 people here. This one goes to 11. I am here. Uh, we are live. We are live, gentlemen. I've heard. Yes, I've heard. Okay. I've heard. All right. Nice color shirt, Marcello, for the questioners. And Nate, we're not mad. We're not, we're not mad, no, Nate. No, Nate, we're not mad. You're just never invited back. <laughs> Also, not true. We're just, not true. we're just figuring it out as we go along. Where's Nate's camera? Yeah, Nate and Roberta, if you could turn your cameras on, please. They're not going to show their faces. Yeah, that's, that's why I was trying to, yeah. <laughs> you were hiding. It's fine. Up, Nate? This up? has happened many times before. It's not the first time. Look at all it's those not the colored walls. Yeah, all it's not the walls. first time. It happened 57 minutes early, but it ha it has happened like 47 minutes early or at least 40 minutes. The crowd is going to be so pleased. All 14 of them right now. So is this like the pre-show pre banter? Is that it? Pre so it's behind the banter And Ryan is going to add all this to the recording. <laughs> and oh, super. <laughs> high quality content. And you guys are killing me that this thing is live. Oh, yeah, we're live. We're, mm -hmm. we're super live right now. Very oh, sorry, Nate. I guess we forgot to tell Nate this is live and recorded. Oops. Uh, I think Nate hit the button. Well, I pushed the button. Yeah. I'm, I can't get over it. Yeah. Okay. So if you, ask, if you leave at any point, it's also going to prompt you if you want to end for everyone. Nate's not going anywhere. He started. Don't do that. Don't do that. I guess we could start talking about important things now, or we could just ask the audience what they want us to talk about. Sure. I, I won free tickets off the radio to see live the band live, not live like the band live. Band live. Six. That was my first. And at that time, uh, the woman on the radio developed a crush on me, and so I would call every single night and just talk to her because she was really struggling with her radio DJ job. And uh, and you were seventeen. I, I was. Sixteen? Sixteen? Uh, Seventeen. Like there's a movie about this. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was like this, we probably talked for like three straight weeks. I'd call her every night and just talk to her while she was, like the music would play and I would just talk to her Wait, while the music was playing. And we would just chat and I'd stay online and then she's like, oh, hold on, I gotta go talk. And so she'd do the radio DJ thing. And then after about three weeks, we she was finally like, you know, should we meet? And I was like, I'm 17, and she's like, Oh, no way! Oh, so sad. What's your birthday? You're illegal. Yeah. Wasn't this a Seinfeld episode? I'm pretty sure this sounds like a Seinfeld episode. Is John here? Yeah, he's here. John's here. I heard his voice. Let John know we're live. Let him know we're live. Oh, by the way, John, we're live. Hey, Jason. Let me know if this. Can you hear me, Jason? CJ, are you there? <laughs> no, because my mic, my mic mute didn't work last time, and you muted me, so I'm testing it. So now I'm going to turn it off. What? You are muted. You're muted. Perfect. What? I, 
He's cussing you out. <laughs> Wait, was that my performance review just now? Yeah. yeah exactly. Looks like my performance review, which is weird. <laughs> you get performance reviews? I say, what? what? Uh, John calls every once in a while and says, just keep doing what you're doing. I feel like that's... Hey, Jordan, do you want your performance review? Let's do this. Here Let's we go. Live. <laughs> oh, that's really nice of you. Is that my annual? We should do all our performance reviews live in front of an audience. I think it helps to moderate. <laughs> hey, Marcello. That's yeah. the next Black Hills webcast. Is uh, We're just going to do <laughs> another performance review. So, Roberto, Nate, any you guys have any questions for us? You want to throw some topics out there? Well, the answer is no. All right. Well, <laughs> Chicken, 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 Oh my! And, yeah, and I realized that like the last several of our webcasts start out saying, "All right, so this is not one of our normal webcasts," <laughs> and it's been like the last six that start that way. So, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because Jordan and I, like when we do these webcasts, we like we, we create chaos everywhere. Sorry to build uh, like a studio, and how nice it is that yours is all set up and doesn't have any cables and it's all clean. And then I walk in here and I'm like, "Oh, everything's a tripping hazard." <laughs> <laughs> All right, on Discord, without going to the Google or whatever search engine du jour, what year did Apache Server come out? 95? Uh, I'm going to say 93. Four. 94. Jason. I'm going to go 91. $1. Jason nailed it for $1,000. Yes. 95. What? No. Oh, Damn. 1995. How did you know that? 95? Well, Jason has been on the internet for a very, very long time. <laughs> Jason, how's the Crab Shack guy? Is he okay? Oh, so what Marcello is referencing, I live in Baltimore, which is, is the heroin capital and the crab cake capital of the world are in the exact same location. So. I'm very proud. It's the same business? Like, it's, yeah, like, it's, like, it's a long like, building. Sprinkle on the crab cake that makes it taste so good. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, an yeah. indoor flea market where you can yeah. get crab cakes and heroin. Uh, it's, 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 it's a small like business. It's a they small don't have a storefront. Like, there's no storefront for the heroin, but it's just it's sprinkled throughout. So I'll post a link. By the way, our guests have left. Driveway kind of story. Our guests, our guests left. left. Oh yeah, they seriously. Did. They just ejected. They're like, peace. I'm out of here. I don't know what you guys do at this company, but this is not it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. At least they didn't hit the end button when they left. Yeah, that's good. That's good. They didn't didn't pull the David off maneuver. Oh, John, how's the livestock? Um, I have too many cows. Great segue. Let's eat one. (laughs) We should. But the problem is we can't process cattle right now because, uh, like, apparently when when COVID was skyrocketing, a whole bunch of the, like, uh, slaughterhouses they just couldn't process meat anymore because you know people catching covid and things like that and uh, a lot of the feedlots basically sold the cattle for dirt cheap so a bunch of like individuals bought cows to get them in and like uh, the normal butcher that we work through is booked through 2021 right now 
You know what this means, John? You got to do it yourself. You got to, you got to, you got to just like, you know, just. That's right. Marcello. Do the Rocky thing. Yeah. Just go full medieval, you know, soften it up. You got a back post. We can just put chains on it and burn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The profile pic is gonna be like Twisted Sister. Stay hungry. Yeah, yeah. Did Rocky yeah. fight a cow? In the, in the first Rocky, he would go in and he'd punch uh, hanging sides of people. Oh, it was dead. You okay. are honest. Okay. Did you know that Rocky punched a cow? Fought a real cow. He'd be very disappointed in you. Yeah, that cow must have been pissed. Like, that. <laughs> like what, what's the cow going to do? Nothing was hanging by its back legs. Film <laughs> Trivia says there was nine cows they used for filming. It was hard to get all the spots to match. Your cows never match up like that. I, I actually never, I've never seen it, it. Is the cow dead? Was the cow dead in the movie? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, in a meat locker. Oh. Meat locker. Oh. Oh. It never was it killed for the movie. Wait a you second. Were, he was punching a lot. Like, yeah, yeah, I thought it was punching a lot. Your gaps of American pop culture are substantial because I got to wonder what you were thinking Rocky was. Yeah. Like, this amazing movie where he boxes a cow? Like, yeah, it's amazing. Amazing. I haven't, this is like a meme. I should see this movie. It's amazing. Oh, you've got to see that movie. Yeah. Dude. I, I got to go see this now. That, that's just like, that's I'm just Aiming at this point, like the cow is already dead, and you're punching it. Like poor cow. At that point, that's the least of his worries. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. But <laughs> should we just be silent until the time it starts? The more pre-show banter is—is it, is it just getting out of control? Is it? Let's, let's meditate. Let's have a quiet moment. Let's have a quiet. Game. It can't be done. It can't be done. The cat has no freaking discipline. That was perfect. I don't know who's called that one, but that was freaking perfect. I love it. Oh, that's not going to be in the recording. Poke him, so he did that. How did no, he do that? he's like over there. He's just a cat. He knew. He knew we were he's all being quiet. Like it's quiet. It's my turn. So, Jason, I think we're ready if you're ready, Jordan. We are absolutely ready. So I'm just going to get this kicked off. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Black Hills Information Security webcast. Uh, we do these every week. So if this is your first time, make sure to come back. Except we're not going to do them for the next couple of weeks because we're getting ready for Wallace Hackenfest. Today we have uh, Jordan and Kent are hosting. I know it says John Strand, but it's actually Kent. Kent, wave your hand. And then we have special guests, Nate, Roberto, and Marcello here today. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we're going to talk about uh, open source software hunting adversarial enemy simulation. And with that, I'm going to kick it over to you guys. I'll see you all in a little bit. Thank you, Jason. Kent, you're going to be talking mostly, and I'll just be hanging sure. Let's do this. So uh, first off, we have to say that this probably isn't like our normal webcast. This is just like our normal webcast. So we've got a couple things we want to talk today, a couple things to get through. The pre-show banter, we already went through that. You already checked that. It's going to be awesome. Next up, though, is going to talk about, with our panelist discussion about OSS, some community problems that we've seen and kind of wanted to discuss. we got a group together that's going to go through some things with us. And then after that, we've got a project spotlight with some of Roberto's work with the open threat research. So let's get right into it. So for our hosts, uh, Jordan and I, probably aren't going to talk a whole lot. We're going to hope that uh, Roberto, Nate, Marcello, and John, who's not present at the moment, will have a great discussion. And uh, Jordan and I can kind of ask some questions. Audience, feel free to ask questions as well. I cannot see Discord, but I'm hoping Jordan can and can bring them to light yeah. as those pop up. 
let's uh, get started. Well, man, really quick. So we want to talk about how we got here. This is like the dirtiest slide. In fact, Roberto sent me slides and they're all beautiful. Mine are continually not, but graphic design is my passion. So what we've got here, we had a conversation a while back. Jordan and I had started teaching classes and we were using some of the tools that Roberto and Nate built and maintain. And we started to end up like, hey, maybe this could be done differently this way, or we needed help. And we'd go to them and they helped us out. And eventually that turned into us having a Zoom conversation. And that turned into eventually this, where we're kind of coming together and we kind of discussed about open source things. And it's interesting. We kind of found some items that I think we kind of wanted to bring to light and see what everybody's take on it was. And talk about it with the community as well. So on the screen are a bunch of different open source projects. You can check them out. Eventually there will be a slide somewhere that has a bunch of links, like thousands or hundreds, or at least 20 links. Anyways, uh, in the upper right-hand corner there, you will see me with Martello, and then lower right was our Zoom meeting. There we go. All right, so let's jump into that discussion. With the, the group of four we have here, one of the first things we wanted to talk about was uh, this upcoming idea of, of threat intelligence sharing. And it's not really a new idea, but we wanted to talk about it. And I think one of the reasons we did is there's a lot of different groups doing it, some commercial, some nonprofits, some that are open source doing it out and trying to give it out just to bring it to light. And I uh, kind of wanted to get everybody's opinion on that and kind of see where everybody's at with it. So what we've got here is Roberto and, and Nate really working heavily on the hunting and detection side and Marcello kind of representing the, the real red team tactics, um, adversarial emulation side. Again, Jordan and I kind of hosting John's thought leader. Anyways, so let's jump right into it. I guess from that perspective, Roberto, later on today, or in, really in a few minutes, you're going to talk about your projects that you have out there with, with really threat intelligence and trying to share that with the community. What's your take on this? You know, a lot of organizations are starting to do it, but they're still, they're still failing at finding some of the emulation tactics we use. Yeah, I think that... Um... To me, like there is, for example, like working on a few organizations in the past, one of the issues that I saw a lot was that type of you know, attribution, no to the threat actor, but actually attribution back to the company that was actually breached or something happened. How did they get that intelligence? And I think that that was definitely a scary thing for a lot of companies that I've worked with. They didn't want to share as much because they felt that there is a lot of you know correlations between what is being shared with, oh, you know, they might have been hacked or something must have happened in the organization. I think that that was one of the big, big things that I saw that I couldn't speak, you know, couldn't talk to a lot of other researchers about my research, for example, because that was that fear of like how stakeholders can also take that. And it was just like a whole constraint out there from like sharing, just like simple sharing. And of course, the, the other thing that I see a lot is is more towards just trying to keep the knowledge to yourself where there is not much of that. Yeah, I want to help you know, the community out there, but it's more just saying, this is what I know and I want to just keep it to myself and, or just trying to, you know, what is the word like gatekeeping a little bit. Um, and I think that that also influences a lot, right? That, that influences a lot, even though there might be some ways to collaborate through organizations. Some of the people, in my opinion, based on my experience running those efforts might not want to even share as much from the beginning. And I think that that also plays a, you know, big role. Yeah. You know, it sounds kind of like, and I, from your perspective, you're doing a lot of this open source, right? Do you see a lot of other other organizations trying to do the same thing? I mean, Jordan and I really started getting heavy into hunting as well, and it's 
I mean, it, it's just a massive amount of time and effort that goes into that. Do you think that there's just that time hurdle to be able to really invest in the community to be able to, to provide yeah. something back takes a lot of effort? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that this is the time. This actually, this is one of the first years that I've seen a lot of conversations about, you know, sharing, but at the same time supporting those efforts from the community perspective, like not just giving to the community, but actually contributing and getting also help and support from the community to the people sharing those open source ideas, tools. And, and I think that that's definitely the, the year companies are you know, investing a lot. For example, Microsoft is, is doing a lot. Uh, now is trying to you know, build a lot of initiatives around a couple of projects that are community driven and not just let the big organization drive a project. So I, I'm seeing companies doing that a lot. And I think that they get the benefit of you know, getting that you know, collaboration, threat intelligence through collaboration is, is definitely, in my opinion, cost effective. And there is a lot of researchers out there that are very smart. And they're sharing a lot of things that you, know, you can collaborate directly with them, support them, and then you can create this pipeline where, from my perspective, you don't probably have to hire 10 different, 20 different uh, detection researchers when you can create a pipeline with the community as well and, and, and you know, get that information also. From the community, you can benefit from it. And if you get any feedback, any context, you know, add it to that type of threat intelligence, you can give it back to the community and you help other people. So I think that that, that's something that I, I believe is clicking more and more um, in organizations. Now, John rejoined me here. John, I do need you on this one. I can come back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, one reason I want to bring you in is talking about threat intelligence sharing. And um, one of your webcasts has the quote from you. It's right there. Why I hate threat intel. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, to add that. What, what's your take on that? So whenever you're looking at the vast majority of threat intelligence that exists today, like if you're looking at the pyramid of pain, a lot of it is the stuff that is, quote unquote, easy to do, but the value is very limited, especially against advanced adversaries. So if you're looking at a tremendous amount of threat intelligence, it's basically IP addresses and hashes and domain names. And that's what a lot of people buy. Now, when you're, when you're going further into that, there was a study that was released recently. A bunch of universities looked at a bunch of threat intelligence feeds and correlated them. And found that there was like a one to three and a half percent overlap between the threat intelligence feeds, which is absolutely horrifying, right? So we're basically all seeing the elephant. We're seeing different parts of the elephant, which in and of itself is fine up until the point that people start charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for a very small view of the overall elephant. Where I think threat intelligence has a tremendous amount of value is whenever you actually start getting into the specific techniques, like this is how process injection looks. This is the way the logs look when this happened. A lot of the stuff that's been happening with the MITRE attack technique matrix, it kind of fits into that realm where you're at not just looking at a specific threat actor and what IP addresses did they use, but what are the, actually t the techniques that they actually use. And that's where I see a tremendous amount of value in threat intelligence feeds. But overall, I absolutely hate the commercial threat intelligence feed marketplace right now because I think the vast majority of it is actual just snake oil. Finally, I'm on a rant. I apologize. A lot of companies are taking signatures like antivirus signatures and IP addresses, and DNS blacklists. And that's what your freaking antivirus does. That's what your firewall does. And they're basically repackaging and reselling that back to people as something different. And that's that's my biggest concern with it. So, all right, that's yeah. my point. Now, we gotta, I think we got to... Do I go back to the corner now? <laughs> I think it's a good opportunity maybe for, for Nate to chime in because I know there's, there's some interesting points that maybe... They would, would want to counter, perhaps. 
I I don't say counter. I, I say John makes a really good point. I mean, especially dealing with threat intel like on a large scale. And I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be 500,000 computers or something, but there's a whole process of the difference between if, if it was a landing page that led to an exploit, like it's a phishing email, but then they clicked it, but then did they type in their credentials and those sort of things. So like even pretty good threat intelligence, there's such a high, like, there's such a large amount of effort that has to be put in place to even verify everything after something happens. And I think with the TTPs, like, you know, helping out on the Sigma project, we've had, from what I've seen internally, right, not speaking on behalf of it, of myself, but we've seen like this, like balance of like, well, how do we get people who don't know about Sigma, like using Sigma or talking about it or getting interested in it? And it's, it's almost as if, like, you have to use the word threat intel. You have to have, like, an IP address, and it waters. It's tough, right? Like, there's that balance there. But, I mean, if you look at certain things, like a Sigma rule, for example, like an office dropper, right? Like, that covers so many threat actors. Maybe not up to now, because there's various ways, but for two, three, four, five years, like, that covered almost every threat actor, you know, known to man. Focusing on the tactics and techniques, you can't can't put a price on that, right? Like especially things that are "quote unquote" bulletproof and last last a long time. And it, but it, it is harder, right? I, mean, I think it's harder to create, to disseminate, to ingest, to actually utilize that properly. And I think that the Sigma project is awesome for kind of becoming that Rosetta Stone, so that we can actually have these rules and we can actually share them in a way effectively across multiple different sim platforms. And I think that that's absolutely one of the best things happening in the industry right now. And I think it's like a overarching theme, even into data, right? People just expect this stuff to work. They just expect threat intel to work. They expect like an alert to be an alert. That is a bad thing. You know, a canary in the coal mine sort of thing, but it's, there's nothing like bulletproof like that. There's no, no silver bullet sort of thing. Right. So, and then as you start to get into tactics and techniques, they can be more complex for people to understand, like as a new analyst or something like that. So it's like, they just set it to the side pretty quickly, but yeah, it's the overarching theme of like quote unquote complexity, which I was going to say in the time perspective, jumping back, coming from a geometrically shaped building, you know, even being able to like learn to be able to use certain tools, um, the time, you know, you're might not be in a specific environment where you can even have access to certain emulated data or a certain data period. And that's really why, like, I've liked to, you know, support Roberto in any way I can, because having kind of experienced that and that frustration as a, a new person working night shift or something and wanting to learn, but you can't. Right. So the, mm-hmm. the tools he's built has enabled obviously all of us or most of us on this call. So. so to me, there's a huge parallel between military intelligence and cyber intelligence and general intelligence works very well. Very rarely do you get specific intelligence. So it doesn't mean there's no value to intelligence. Obviously companies wouldn't put it into competitive intelligence. You know, military wouldn't put resources into it. It's just, I think your expectation, like when you're talking about the magic bullet, you're going to be hacked tomorrow because I see these indicators. Be careful what your expectations are. And that, a quick aside, we've actually seen firms that have reached out to BHIS that want to partner. And they're like, yeah, we can actually do predictive intelligence. We can tell you when your company is going to be hacked. And I'm like, oh, come on. 
Let's go. Um, before we dismiss them, though, I said, like, hey, can they just tell us when we're going to be breached so we can prepare for it? There we go. Give us that day. I think that's a good segue to move to the next topic discussion here. Hackers won't stop. And I think this is something that we see again and again and again, right? And I always, I've always said that it seems like the defense is always, like, they're, they're close, but they're always one step behind. To stay one step behind, we have to continually push and push and push. And I guess just tiring after a while. And I'm kind of curious on your guys' perspective. I'm, I'm very curious on Martell's perspective with the red team simulations or emulations and also on Nate's and Roberto's regarding uh, defenders fatigue. You know, after a while, you're putting all this effort into it just to keep up. What, what does that feel like? And I'll kind of let you guys uh, answer that at your opportunity. I mean, from my side, while I do agree, like the defenders are one step behind, that whole concept gets reversed once you're actually inside the defenders network, right? Yes, I think yes and no on that one. In terms of like never stopping, absolutely. Like you'll always see actors changing up their tactics in order to breach networks and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, no, I hundred percent agree that there, there, there definitely is a lot of how should I put this? There's definitely, there's definitely a a, a big gap in terms of defenders being able to get good detections in place. And when I say good detections in place, I mean actually detecting underlying techniques as opposed to just the tooling. That's probably the biggest that's probably mm-hmm. the biggest issue I see so far with especially like EDR products, which I won't name, but a lot of EDR products and a lot of commercial products out there, they tend to be focused a little bit too much on the actual tools as opposed to the underlying techniques. So what happens is you just go to re-implement that technique in your own code or re-implement however you want, and it just bypasses all the things because they, they use a combination of signature detection and behavioral detection that's that's honed in on specific tools that are known to use the technique, but they're not actually detecting the underlying technique. And I think that's 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 by far I think the biggest problem that I see in terms of when it comes to sum it up. Your concern with like EDRs that are looking for invocations of PowerShell, right? That typically yeah. wouldn't happen. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I think we should start like moving away from the idea where, like, or at least, at least commercial products, especially commercial products, because you know when you're paying like ten grand for a license, you know you'd expect the, the darn thing to work well, right? I mean, but we should start moving away from the idea of like, hey, maybe we should we, we can we can use a combination of of things in order to detect specific tools, right? And, you know, I, I can name a gazillion examples, like, you know, detecting strings and, like, Mimi Cat, the Mimi Cat's banner and stuff. Like, come on. Like, we, should, we should move away from that kind of stuff and move away from a combination of both behavioral tech and actually start looking at the underlying techniques a little bit more. At least that's just my opinion. And, I, I mean, that's yeah. just that's from my experience. Yeah, the... From my side, I think that yes, you know, the alert fatigue—that's crazy. I mean, like I, I worked on a couple of socks before, and it it was just too much, you know, too much to handle because there's a lot of things that, in my opinion, come back to the initial question that we had, talking about threat intelligence and how that could be even implemented or sent to your team and and you know, all the stuff. To me, there's a couple of things that you know, definitely made a difference to start getting better in that piece, which is you know, one is technology. So the more, it doesn't matter if you send me an IP or a hash, if I have technology that would allow me to correlate a lot of other data sources that could provide context around that, 
in a faster way rather than just trying to me to open like 10 different tabs of my same and trying just to find pieces together, you know, then open my notepad or Excel, trying to just build a table to get together all the different indicators that have been around it. I think that that also influences a lot of this fatigue because you're just doing things at the end that first, one, could be automated. And, and, and two, if you don't have the, the context or telemetry around that intelligence, um, then at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you pump to that same you're just going to be looking at all the alerts and be like, well, this is great. Something must be happening, but you know, there's nothing you can do about it. So I think that that's also why I believe that even like this year or these past two years, I'm seeing that us as I would refer to threat hunters in general as, you know, data analysts, because we're just analyzing a bunch of data. And then if we want to get a little fancy, then you can get into some of those, uh, you know, statistical analysis. But in general, just like data, you know, data analysts, you know, need to have the tools to, you know, be able to do their job. And I think that in the past two years, we're seeing technology actually shift into the point where now I can do some correlations. Like for years, you know, you get a, a nice, beautiful dashboard and all you can do is query the same table or the same index and do a basic Boolean query, which is not going to pretty much allow you to have the context that you need to detect, as Marcella was saying, the technique in general or the behavior under the tool. And I think that that's also a big, big thing that I'm seeing nowadays technologists allowing the analysts to do that. And I think that we're getting better. And that's what I believe that this is the time to start sharing more and more because more telemetry is being discovered, more telemetry knowledge is being shared. So why not now use it to create that context around the pyramid of pain, for example, right? You have the pyramid, but if you don't have the context, then it's just a great way to, you know, put it out there, but you cannot operationalize that, you know, pyramid of, of pain pretty much. So talking about pyramids of pain, so you sent me the slide deck last night at like 3.46 my time, so, <laughs> and I immediately replied to you, and I think this kind of brings up the next, the next topic here. I'm going to let Jordan drive this one. The next two, I think there is something interesting there that is a lot of late nights of open source coding, right? And you and I oh, obviously yeah. were up last night working on the slide decks. I think, uh, Jordan, I'll let you take it from here on these last two. We're all tired, and there is no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we give up our like personal lives to make the world a better place. And in a lot of situations, that is okay. In in others, it's I am now stressed. I haven't slept. Uh, my kids are like not super thrilled with me. Uh, my relationship is getting dicey. Like there, there's so many issues that come with giving it all when late nights roll around because we all have day jobs. <laughs> Generally speaking. Those day jobs aren't to develop the tools that are pushing detections forward, that are making the world a better place. So like Marcella, we have leaned on you heavily to build the techniques and, and detect beaconing in inelastic. What does beaconing look like? And then we're using both Nate and Roberto's efforts in Helk to ingest your tooling. All of this comes after hours. And I know a lot of you probably give up your late nights and your family lives. And, and that's hard. It's, it's painful almost. So I don't, whoever wants to take that and run, I'm tired. And right now, right? Like you, you develop slides in, in, at late night because we don't have time. Like there's no time. You got to make it. <laughs> I, I know yeah. uh, the scrum this morning, our, our uh, scrum this morning for our infrastructure team, you know, you can tell one of them was just getting it. <laughs> it's okay. Cause we know what they were doing last night at 2 a.m. And it's okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will pre, I will start the conversation by saying it's a lot easier if you don't have a family. However, <laughs> it still, it still sucks. 
<laughs> it's the, yeah, I, I, uh, I 100% agree on um, what uh, Jordan just said. I think we all have to start moving away from the idea that it's okay that these like big companies like just use this open source tooling without giving back anything to it, either to the developers in the form of either code or whatever, because I think we're at a point now where this has been the norm for a long, long time. And talking to other people who do this, it seems like they're we're we're all in the same situation where we're not sleeping, we're we're not you know we're having health issues and all that. I know for I know myself, I've had an enormous amount of health issues over the past year or so because of probably this uh, exact same thing. So I think we need to start moving away from the old way of thinking that it's okay for people to do this in their off time and actually either give them space during their day job to make these tools or actually help them a lot more than what's being done right now. Because while I think I do, I, I, I'm never going to like, I just want to preface what, what what I'm about to say with like the thank yous and everything are amazing. Like, I, like, you know, when, when someone says, Hey, I used your tool and it helped me do X faster or easier and it saved me like six hours eight hours of work that's fantastic like that that that's that's exactly what why roberto and and me and other people in the community do this for the exact same thing however i think we need to start moving away from okay thank you but i think we should especially if you're working for like a big company or like a huge organization that's using tools that other people produce for free commercially I think we need to start moving away from the idea that thank you is enough. That that's what I think we should start moving away from because I'm okay with with like the individual uh, that the ideal whole idea is building these tools is that okay you're an individual you're on a budget you don't you don't have time to you don't have time or a budget to build like to to buy commercially available tools right to to do this thing that I want to emulate or do or whatever. So that's exactly what I'm aiming for. But when you do have the budget and when you do have the resources in order to either contribute back or either in the form of code or whatever, I think you should. I think there, there should be some rule or, or some sort of standard in place that, that, that emphasizes that. I mean, I, and that's, again, that's just my opinion. Okay, and here's my only, my only thing about this. Like, even on the BHIS coding team, we have duplicated efforts to accomplish the same goal and not communicated well enough. And thus, Roberto and Nate approached Kent and I with an almost a call to arms. How do we come together as an open source community to centralize these efforts? And then last, like if someone can find the story about the OpenSSL guy, like he sent out a request to some of these companies that use his product, like the entire Internet. And he got like $88 back or something. Yep. Yep. The curl, the person who developed curl, I think before... I think there was some story. I read this story a while back and I might be paraphrasing or misquoting, but so please correct me. But there was a story where he basically developed curl, right? And he didn't get a set for years until, and, and literally, I mean, who doesn't use curl, right? Like it's like, it, it's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Like it's packaged in every IOT device. Probably it's packaged everywhere. Like if everyone, and he hasn't gotten, he like, he, he didn't get a dime up until recently for, for developing curl and putting in like features 
every single time a new version of HGP comes out, every single time like that something he he just keeps cranking those features out. Thankfully, I, I think he does. I think thankfully, Curl is at a point where he does get a lot of help from other people uh, in terms of PR, in terms of pull requests, and all that stuff. But I think this is a good segue. I mean, you're up, we're, we're kind of struggling for time. I know um, this is probably a good segue, John, to kind of jump in and talk about reinvesting in open source. Yeah. And also probably Nathan and uh, Roberto as well. But go ahead, John. So, Whoa. you know, kind of springboarding off of what Marcello was talking about, Marcello's got a new yeah. program and the way he's trying to get sponsorships for some of the tools that he's working on. We're trying to support that. He's getting some additional sponsors. But right now, as an industry, we suck at supporting the people who support us. We will talk about using tools. Will you use we'll use things like Help? Will you use things like Security Onion? Will you use things like Rito or Silent Trinity and all of these different tools? And then there's entire economies that are built around those particular tools. And there's people that make way more money than the people who are actually developing the tools. And I got tired of this in, this kind of leech culture that exists in our industry. Whereas Marcello said, yeah, you meet me at a conference and say, thanks, that's great. That doesn't exactly pay the bills and it doesn't exactly make it justified to spend time away from your family. So one of the things that we're trying to do, and I encourage anybody who's listening and watching this webcast to encourage your companies to do something like that. If you're a company that uses a tool heavily, you should really think about giving money to the people who are working on those tools. So while we're Hacking Fest, we always give back 10% of, of net, what we well, actually of gross, of what we make on our training classes to uh, open source tool associated with that class. Now, recently with COVID, we've opened that up to other training or not training, um, other nonprofits and groups like Red Cross and things like that. But by and large, it goes to open source projects that keep this community going. Because we have to stand up and say thank you. I will also say, if you're a developer of a tool like this, do me a solid favor and have a donate button on your GitHub repository, or at least a link where people can donate. And, and I'm I'm kind of looking at you know like 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 Hulk and Sigma a little bit here because whenever we said hey we want to give you money to almost all of the open source projects, they were like, I don't know how do I accept money. They didn't even know where to begin to actually accept things from the community because that's how far down the line that we've just expected to do these and use these tools for free, that people were writing these tools without even the least bit of expectation that somebody would support them. So we need to start supporting the community of Sigma. We need to start supporting the community uh, for people like Helk and Security Onion and all of these different open source projects because these are the projects that are feeding us and making us better at our jobs. Let's transition to Roberto's slide deck. I think it's like uh, open source developers, all these various projects, a lot of people on the calls. I think also we, as a community, as developers, could continue or do a better job of supporting each other, right? Like, you don't have to become friends with somebody and tell them everything about yourself, right? But it's follow-up, like, if you're helped as follow-up in a business lead, right? Follow-up as, like, a friend who is a part of the contributing project, right? Like ask them how they're doing. Just it's simple, it's simple things. Cause you're not always going to get the support that you need from the quote unquote community. Right. So us as a community of a community could do a better job of supporting each other again, which is why I joined, right? Like BHIS, you know, Roberto and I've gotten to talk to Marcello only once, but you know, the majority of everybody on this call, right? Like does that, you know, that's why I'm here. So. 
And just just the last thing on this, um, and that so my efforts recently have been trying to do exactly this as sort of to get better to make this to make this whole leech culture, as Jean put it, which is amazing. That's that's an amazing way of describing it. Unfortunately. But I, so I founded a Discord server called Porqueta Industries, and I put that on, on our Discord channel. And the whole idea of this is that we help each other uh, support, like support each other, whoever, doesn't matter what team you're on, blue team, purple team, indigo team, whatever team you decide to be on. Uh, we help support each other. We, get, we help you get to a point where you can accept donations. We can help you through like setting up your own GitHub sponsorship and stuff. So you can then be successful with your own GitHub sponsorship and, and actually get something back for all of the hard work and effort from the community. Because, you know, we can't really call each other a community if we don't actually support each other. I'm, I'm just going to, again, that's my opinion. Well, real quick, just to kind of clarify the, the segue here. So we're kind of switching the gears now. I'm going to drop off camera and uh, Jordan and, and uh, Marcello might as well. And we'll kind of let Nate and Roberto drive from here. So we had a discussion with open source software and kind of where that's led us. And Roberto has put a lot of effort in and he uh, wants to show some of it off today. I think that's going to be super awesome. This is stuff that has been out there for a while and some of it's new stuff, but it's stuff that despite that we haven't seen. It hasn't had great, a lot of attention, the attention I think it deserves. So we're going to leave it to you, Roberto. And uh, questions for the panelists from the audience. We really didn't get a chance to talk earlier. so. If we have time in post-show banter, we'll, we'll hang out for a little bit after the call if uh, everybody has availability. So with that, Roberto and Nate, have at it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, can you guys see my screen? Just just making sure that... Yes, sir. It looks good. Yeah, right. good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So just a little bit to comment on the kind of like ideas for the open source community and all this stuff. I, I, I'm just going to say real quick that I also agree with Marcelo with a lot of things. There's a lot of ways that we can contribute. You know, to the community, but at the same time, I believe that the community goes both ways as well. Kind of like you know, helping your neighbor, and, and you, then your neighbor helps you next day, and you know that type of thing. I think that that's definitely the mindset that we're starting to kind of like see um, as something that we're accepting in the community as well, and that's also amazing. Just open door research is just one movement that I'm starting. is It's not out there yet, but uh, it's something that. I'm just going to make sense in a little bit into what it is that I'm doing and, and why. So already you guys introduced uh, myself, so I'll just skip this. Just my Twitter handle is CyberWarDoc, just in case, uh, for anybody out there. And for me, like all these projects that I started working on started just by first helping me to first expedite my research and, and also trying to learn new things. Like, for example, when we talk about even like Helk itself, you know, Helk for me was built in order to start you know, merging the typical security analyst in a SOC, you know, running queries on a dashboard or a specific search bar, merging that knowledge with tooling that are being used by in, in general data scientists, for example, out there, right? So those experts on analyzing data were using tools that I was not even using, but I was, to me, like I was analyzing data. So why not trying to complement what I'm doing with something else? So that's kind of like the idea. When we start thinking about threat research for me, to me, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. You might have like 10 different steps or two steps, who knows? And, and for me, it starts from defining what it is that you want to do, right? All the way to start documenting, validating your strategies and all the stuff. But something that we're, in my opinion, something that I believe we it's still not something 
that we think about you know, all the time as a community is that the whole process has an additional step, which must be also share your research. And we're not talking about just like external sharing, because I know there's a lot of things, of course, you know, that are work policies or rules that might not allow you to do that, but at least internally, right? Sharing internally so you can help others in your team itself to be better and even like help you with the feedback that would allow you to improve your methodology in general. So I think that that step is crucial. And I haven't seen that every time I see a presentation about threat hunting in general, we talk about all these steps, but in my opinion, we don't talk about the one of the main ones that would allow you to also succeed in your career, be better, get the feedback. And at the same time, if you want to do it a community-based contribution, then you're helping others to also go through this process and you know be better. So when we started talking about open source for me, then I started just taking all these steps and started seeing what it is that I can do in order to expedite some of that research, but also at the same time, learn some new tools and things that will help me to, for example, for my next job, it's going to help me for those tooling that I might be exposed also that are more complex, right? So that's kind of like the idea at the end as well. And when I started thinking about this process, I just started breaking it down into what it is that happens when I want to understand, for example, you know, the adversary tradecraft. And, you know, we're like going through so many different concepts out there to redefine these processes. We're having these like nice frameworks with, you know, different names on there. But the reality is that we're just applying the basics also of even like malware analysis from a static, you know, dynamic analysis all the way to simulating the adversary. First step, of course, I have in there as a read the docs, but you have to read some documentation, of course, um, on the top of doing all these simulations. And at the same time, we start now getting into, okay, now that we understand the adversary or tradecraft itself, now I can tune my auditing, I can expose some telemetry that might not be enabled by default. And there is this whole process as well, once again, that goes over also some simulation to identify and collect that telemetry. But at the same time, now you want to start aggregating this data. Now you want to start identifying what it is that you can enable in your um you know, environment in order to produce that telemetry that you might not have in production. Then you can move all the way to the steps, right? Into doing some of these like filtering, summarizing, grouping, visualizing the data. And I think that this is also a step that I've seen a lot of people skipping, right? We see a lot of simulation, getting some data, getting one query, share it, and just call it a day. Well, there is more to that, right? There is a lot of things that you need to do in order to start adding some more context to that, probably correlated with a different event provider or with a different index or table. And of course, here is where technology also plays a big role. If you don't have the technology that allows you to do that type of thing, then it's hard to prove the value of your methodology as well, right? And then at the same time, now we move into the documentation. In general, you just want to document your telemetry, your analytics, and, and all the stuff at the additional context from your organization. And then, of course, at the end, the last step, which is like, you know, we want to share this research, right? Internally, externally, I like to share my research because that way I can also get, once again, the feedback that would allow me to be better at what I'm doing. And, and that's huge, right? And testing in different organizations to see how your baseline creates that context that you might need to improve your telemetry. But this whole process, I just put this together like uh, yesterday and I was just trying to think about like, you know what, there's a couple of things that I can start aligning with, you know, with a few projects out here. And, and that's the topic of today into some of the projects that I've been working on are pretty much just looking at this basic model and say, what can I do to start helping others? And two, also to expedite a lot of these processes. So when we start talking about understanding adversary tradecraft, once again, besides doing your static, dynamic, basic advanced analysis of the script or the binary, right, there's going to be some simulation going on. Once again, reading documentation, 
And when you start doing all these, these steps, you will realize as a security analyst, for example, that this can take weeks, can take months. Just you can get stuck in the static and dynamic analysis and even reading uh, documentation for once again, like months. That, that piece to me was so important because I'm working also with my brother who is in the industry, like doing cybersecurity and all this stuff. And I wanted to start sharing things right away because his expertise is more about data analysis, right? He's good grabbing data, visualizing it, and probably thinking about different ways to go and build an analytic, right? So to me, I started thinking about how can we start just expediting this process? I can do the reading, I can do the static dynamic analysis, and, I, and there is where projects like you know, Mortar started to come up. Because if, if, if I go through the process where I understand the adversary tradecraft, not 100%, but at least I have an idea into what it is that's happening from a behavior perspective, I can start, once again, like changing my audit policies, trying to probably expose some new telemetry or event providers, and then I can just generate that data set, and then I can just you know, share it with my you know, brother, for example. And, and to me, like, that was huge, because now I can just expedite that process do my homework as well, and then try to help somebody else to get to the data analysis piece without spending the additional probably weeks or probably months trying to figure out how to get to even a simulation, you know, plan or the simulation engagement and all the stuff in your lab. So of course, all this requires once again, a lab. So I built a project called the Mordor Labs, right? So Mordor is the project where I share data sets. And Mortal Labs is the project that allows me to build the data set. And Mortal Labs is just pretty much a bunch of cloud templates that allow me just to build all this pretty much with a one click and just like modifying a few parameters. I use um, Azure Resource Manager templates on that. And we have some Windows environments. I'm working on the Linux and cloud stuff as well. I do have a Linux environment already, but it's not ready yet. But that's something that I'm exposing as well. And my main goal is... I want somebody without any knowledge on Terraform or Ansible or, or anything like that just to go to my GitHub repo or, or to a website where I'm hosting all this and just click a button, just put a password, username, define some basic uh, parameters with a GUI, and then just go with it and then deploy it. I don't want somebody to be installing any other additional software. And that's my goal is how can I share this, expedite the whole process. So... I have a couple of environments you saw in the previous one that I have one that is called APT29, for example. And that's because my goal also as a community-based project is to grab all those emulation plans out there. And one of them that I love to work with is the MITRE ATT&CK team, the attack evaluations. When they release all this information, I jump on it, build all this in um, Azure, and then share all the templates and you know share the whole plan. So that's also what I do. There's another environment called the Shire. I'm a big fan of a lot of the rings, so that's where that's, that's come from. And as you can see, it has a lot of different things going on in here. Like if you're familiar with Azure and you understand some of those you know, icons in here, you have like subnets, you have like Vnets, you have like peering going on between two different, sub, two different Vnets. And I have some options such as point-to-site VPN for, for those that want to not expose the environment to the internet, just like that. So those type of things is what I'm trying also to add to it because I don't want just this environment to be used, for example, just at home because I know that you want to you know bring it to your organization. So how can I also provide some of those things, right? I talk about Azure Resource Manager Services. Real quick, it's just a service that allows you to deploy, right, create things in Azure, and you can access it through different you know ways. And the one that I like the most, once again, is Azure Resource Manager templates. And one, of course, advantage of this is 
if you look at the image, instead of just writing a few PowerShell commands where you pretty much push a couple of different APIs one at a time, you can just push a whole template and then, you know, the, the ARM service is going to, you know, handle all this stuff. How do I do this collection going on? So this is pretty much what happens behind the scenes when, when you deploy these type of environments. It's just basically stars configuring Windows event forwarding in the back. I have a Windows event collector. I install NX log, push it to Logstash, and then I push it to Azure event hubs. You might be asking yourself, why not just throw it directly to a SIM? I can do that, right? I can push it to a SIM, do some analysis, and then just call it a day. But my goal is, how can I still save that data set and, and analyze it with other things? Because I can push that data to any SIM that I want. Or how can I analyze it with other tools that you know, would uh, allow me to do some more, a little bit more advanced analysis? And of course, the main one, how can I share this with the community? So my goal is a little bit disrupting a little bit how you think about detection labs and actually uh, start having that mentality where you are sharing something, right? So I'm trying to build a pipeline that would allow me to share stuff. Azure Event Hub is pretty much a service, doesn't have a service that you have to deploy. It's just a service in general that grabs the data, puts it in a, in a way that you can access it through what is called, for example, some of those like Kafka protocols allows you to consume and produce data back to the service. And I use something called Kafka Cat, which would allow me to grab that data directly as the data is being generated. And then I can push it to a JSON file and just grab that JSON file and share it with anybody else. And it keeps the raw format of the event. So you can just even run like Sigma rules if you want and, and, and you know, all this okay. stuff. Roberto, yeah. can I speak on the NXLog thing? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah. Like touching specifically on why you chose to use NX log versus, you know, WinLog B or something else, right? That would quote unquote like is in the same realm as Logstash. But I think it goes to the overarching theme of like this whole, all these projects, right? Meant to be, I think is best uh, described or detailed like in a tweet somebody recently made where she said, you know, like I'm a data analyst. Roberto's projects like have enabled me to actually be able to use the data, right? Like coming from environments where, you know, you don't have like access to even your SIM, you don't have access, like you might not have six computers at home. You might not have a bunch of money. You might not have a whole bunch of time, right? Like you just want to go start analyzing data, analyzing threats. You don't want to spend all your time going through setting up a SIM, figuring out how to set up collection, like figuring out all the nuances that, Sure, they matter, but really at the end of the day, they don't, you know, like they don't matter for your ultimate end goal, right? And you end up spending half of your time. So, but with NXLog, like we chose to use that because it's been closest to the original source from the events, right? So kind of keeping as much as like, you know, who Roberto works for, who, or the main system that I've always used for the last six years, like you might have a bias, but at the end of the day, like keeping things vendor agnostic, right? Like NXR being closest to the source. And I'll talk about some of this in network telemetry or like, you know, with Sigma writing the rule to the actual log source itself. Right. So NXR, long story short, NXR was chosen kind of for that reason. There's no, no data, no manipulation being done before we share it, essentially. So, which I think is a, a huge aspect, right? And I think that's been one of the big blockers. Like you have the ArcSight versus Elastic, or Elastic versus Splunk, and you have all these, 
you know, theological debates. And at the end of the day, we're five defenders against 10,000 threat actors. You know, now we're fighting. Now we're basically dividing that in half, you know, in the sim camps. So some of the you know questions also that I always have, it's uh, why don't you just export the you know, EVTX file, right? And then use it that way. But when you start getting into your, um, your lab environments, if you want to start correlating all the data automatically, I'd rather have everything in one file and just query that. So that's also something that, that's also one of the reasons why I built this pipe, because my labs don't just have one computer. I want to have context around the domain controller. I want to have context around other computers to generate some additional telemetry that would allow me to serve as a little bit of some type of noise as well. So I try to do that. And I don't, and also one goal in here is I don't share a data set that I say, these are the most five, most important um, you know, events in the data set. Like I, I don't do that because to me, yeah. I'm, to me, it's very important for an analyst to also discover some of those ways that you can add context to it. So that's also key for me to share a data set that would allow me to be a little bit more creative and get the feedback from the community. Uh, and I think so- it's an important distinction of Mordor versus some of the others, because not that some of the others are bad, they're doing great stuff, some different that quote-unquote Mordor is not doing, right? But like... Yeah, you're leaving that creativity up to the person. You're letting them see everything, whether it's good or bad, right? This is a sample data set. It's not going to cost you, you know, a yeah. million dollars on ingest or something, right? And you might not know a t- tactic 10 years from now, but you look back at that log. So it's an yeah. important distinction why, you know, another reason being behind, like, and, and one like of the this. Yeah, then one of the things also is that if somebody wants to use this to build their own environments, right? To me, it's like, if you want to reinvent the wheel for learning stuff, I'm all for it because if because if I want to learn something, I might have to build it myself as well. But you know, if you want to implement it, integrate it with your own, you know, projects as well. Like that's what I also expose all the different scripts that I use. You might see the the name of the project called Blacksmith, and I'm just gonna say real quick, Blacksmith is just a project that I centralize a lot of different scripts that I use. And then I can use it in different projects. So if I have an update, I don't have to go to 10 different repos and then change it. So I just centralize all my basic configurations and scripting. Of course, when we talk about now the adversary simulation piece uh, or understanding the tradecraft and trying to tune some, some telemetry, it's what you get with these type of projects. Like I don't just enable telemetry, send it to uh, one place and then share it with you. I want to do my homework too. And part of my homework was to identify how can I enable some new telemetry? And for example, in this case, in this script, what I do is I, I try to also update the security descriptor of the um, SE manager service, for example, and how I can just enable it to add a SQL to it and say, I want to generate telemetry when an account over the network um, interacts with the service. So that's something that is not enabled by default, for example. But I do that with these scripts and enable a couple of other services, telemetry, adding some, some cycles in there. Some of them don't have cycles. Some of them do. So I just append to the you know, current security descriptor. So those are the type of things that, that you get with the projects because I want to make sure also that I'm sharing the research that I do and people can start learning about these things as well. And then, of course, web subscriptions. Real quick, how yeah. much does Mordor Lab cost on Azure? Is that dollars yeah. per day? Or? Great question. So Mordor gives you the, the option to be modular. So you can deploy one box, join to the domain, domain controller, or 10 boxes, right? But using basically two Windows join, um, yeah, domain join boxes with a domain controller, a WEC, and all this stuff, we're talking about probably close to like a dollar a day is what I've seen. 
the other day I deployed one domain controller in one box only without a WEC, and it was like 40 cents all the way from like 8 a.m. to like 10, 11 p.m. that I was using it. And it wasn't that bad. And that's because I added a few configurations in there to remove like some additional disks that I was using. And of course, the resources that I use are very low. Like a CP- for example, each box is like one CPU, four gigs of memory. So that doesn't, of course, cost you as much. So it depends how long you use it. It depends if you live it up. And it depends how many endpoints you're actually deploying. I use it, I would say, almost every day. I destroy it, go back next day, deploy it again. And, and that's my research tooling that I do almost almost every day. Okay, so just kind of like fast forward into a couple of things in here. We just provide a lot of different documentation so people understand what it is that we're doing. Once again, Azure Event Hubs just allows you to see all the data flowing. As you can see, like 6,000 events flowing and how I can start collecting that data right from the event hubs. And then I can use, once again, KafkaCAD. You can read more about it in the link below. You can just collect data or you can push data back to the event hub. So you can actually use it for training purposes and all and all the stuff if you want to. And if you want to consume data or if you want to get it directly, pretty much this command, like, once you get the recording, you can just copy and paste it or type it if you want to. All you got to do is point to the Azure Event Hub and then, um, you know, set up a configuration that is also part of the project, which has all the instructions in there. And then you can start collecting data. This bit is only a few seconds and pretty much all it does, it runs that command to show you that once you run it, you're pretty much like getting live events flowing through your console. And all you have to do is push that to a file and you pretty much have a data set after emulating or simulating an adversary. Okay, so let me just move here. And then also for those that you want to know about, you know, network telemetry being used in in Mortal Labs, it's pretty much using Network Shell. And it's just trying to use the ETW providers to do the job for you rather than me installing, you know, Wireshark to do any of that. I just just sometimes like to use that. Or I can use something also called Azure Network Watcher. And this is pretty cool because once you deploy your environment, I also deploy extensions called Network Watchers. And all you got to do is just hit the API of your Azure you know, subscription or your portal in the specific resource group. And then you can start pointing to a specific computer and you will be able to generate a PCAP uh, or start generating or start collecting data, you know, PCAPs. And that's just amazing because if I have four or five computers, I don't have to go one by one, enable Wireshark and do all this stuff. Once again, my goal is to expedite all these things. So I just you know, write a batch of script, run this, enable PCAPs. And once I'm done, pretty much going to show us running once you run this script. And once you stop it, you're going to get a PCAP that you can just download and you know push into a Wireshark for, uh, for analysis and all this stuff. Nate, you wanted to add anything there before we move to the next one? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the side changed or disappeared. Sorry, I missed it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing has always been again, like not wanting to get in a theological debate, but of network versus endpoint. But that's been at least one thing I've tried to really help contribute to with this is bringing both of those camps together. Right, like everybody says, one is better than the other. There's there's scenarios where one can't even exist. Right. Like you might not be able to install endpoint on an ATM or, you know, pre investigation. Right. Like you're coming into an incident. You don't want to just start installing and enabling Windows event logs. You want to just plug something. You want to plug in a tap or a span. Right. To kind of get that unbiased opinion before you start, you know, moving your chess pieces and, and showing your hand to a threat actor. Right. So I think 
you know, without going for days about why it's important to have both endpoint and PCAP or network, right? Like that's another reason why, you know, spent a lot of time helping Roberto out, right? Is, is having, having both of these things in one and how important that is for your organization, as well as just for your own learning and for quote unquote catching bad guys. So, so yeah. quick question, what are your thoughts on packet beat? Oh man. Um, yeah, I, it's tough. A lot of it's port based, right? I think that's kind of why Zeke, you know, and then eventually Suricata and then the two working together. But I kind of think that's kind of why Zeke had a lot of his success is that dynamic protocol, you know, ability like if it's HTTP over port 3021, you know, you don't need to add 3021 to your protocol analyzer, you know, configuration. That's one, one big thing I've seen with it. I think it's, let me just say this, take a step back. And for the sake of time, I think it fills a gap, right? I think it has its purpose. I think it does, does a good job. My my biggest concern, especially on the enterprise is how the hell do you roll it out? Especially since it's relying on NP cap and the licensing of NP cap won't exactly allow you to do a silent unintended install. So that's, that's one of my concerns. I'm I'm sure it'd be nice to have Marcello on here, right? You're then opening up, uh, you know, a additional threat landscape, right? Additional threat vectors and those sort of things, which is why jump real quick, like just always kind of stress windows event or windows event forwarding and windows event collection. You don't have to update, maintain agents, you know, like you don't have, if there's a, you know, vulnerability in your event forwarding, you know, you only have it on five servers versus 50,000 devices. So yeah, yeah, I didn't even think of the licensing aspect. That's a, just a good point as well. Adding in there. That's what for the lab, like things like, you know, just having an extension on the VM and start doing some of that is just huge because then all that gets pushed to one location and downloaded. And it's like way easier to, you know, to use. All right, so the model data sets project pretty much would be the output of all this stuff. We have a couple of different things going on in here, like PCAPs, JSON files mapped to uh, specific techniques or, or tactics, trying to do our best to map it to a behavior, like especially from a name, you know, name perspective. Some of them, some of them are named to tools because we want to also share this is what it looks like in this tool, this is what it looks like in this other tool. And most of the time, it's pretty much the same behavior. It's just a different you know, tooling being used. And there's a website for that, so you can see even an attack navigator view for a lot of different things. And of course, you know how you can use this. There's a lot of I've, I've actually heard more of being used in interviews from a few companies where they grab a data set and they just push it to their own sims, and they can just start an interview, right? For example, if the person is proficient on, on network stuff like PCAPs, where you can just download all the PCAPs that we have and then push them to your own places, and you can just, just start an interview. You know, let's go through the PCAP, right? So that type of stuff. You can do hackathons. You can do also research on the top of that, you know, being creative, identifying what, you know, data sets, I'm sorry, data sources are being provided in the data set. And of course, you can use it to validate analytics. It has the close to the row format. So you can apply even like Sigma rules across all the different data sets in general. And at the end of the day, so this is pretty much a hackathon that I put together, you know, where you can use. I put together the APD29 data set and then I just ran through the whole EDR evaluation process that they did. I pick only one category for yeah the telemetry detection category from attack evals, and I just pretty much starting identifying 
how many data criteria the the all pretty much like free data was uh would help an organization and that project is at the bottom the link is out there you can go through every single you know rule created map to the detection criteria for each step in the attack evaluation so i also did that and that's a fun fun project because you can prove that a lot of telemetry that you can collect for free it's it's also valuable and then when we start moving to this step this is pretty much just trying now to uh, to understand identify the telemetry and this goes beyond just being very technical. This goes now understanding what it is they're collecting, what are the different schemas that you're getting, so you can start also validating your queries as well, if they are actually hitting the right field names and all the stuff. And of course, the project map to this process is awesome, which has all the stuff as well. And you can go to the link out there and you can read more about it. And of course, when we start talking about centralizing data, we use help, right? And, and help pretty much also allows us to start analyzing some of this data, right? I just going to say that the reason why Helk also was created was because I wanted to complement my analytics capabilities with the tool itself behind Helk, right? I added a few things and one of them, oh, uh, so we pretty much go to the whole design. Everybody might be familiar with this, right? But at the end of the day, if you focus on the right side of Helk, it's pretty much what, in my opinion, makes it powerful over other standard uh, stacks out there as an open source project allows you to then start getting into these correlations, filtering, enrichment of data. And, and that's what, in my opinion, Helk also started getting a lot of attention. I wasn't expecting it to, to get a lot of attention, but because it was a project, once again, that I wanted to help me first to understand like how I can start doing some additional analytics besides just like Boolean queries, like ANDs, and Bs and or Bs and things like that. Like I wanted to do more with that, like joins, order by, count buys, and even probably start getting closer to some of the statistical analysis that some techniques require, right? So this is why we jump into the Jupyter uh, side in here where Jupyter Notebooks definitely allow me to have the freedom from an analytics perspective, bring languages that I, uh, I'm familiar with, like Python, like R, uh, PySpark, things like that that I could use, for example, to start analyzing you know, data. And Jupyter Notebook, think about as a, as a document that you can access over a you know, web interface where you can save input, output, you can save notes, visualizations, and it's the evolution of the IPython project and all the way from the basic Python interpreter or the, or the experience in there can actually be kind of improved adding some of these statistical analysis things and, and a visualization that you can see on the right and you can save all, all the stuff. But then the creators of this also understood that this was not only for Python. This could be used for other languages. And that's where the Jupyter Notebook project started. And it was now called the IPython Notebook project. IPython Notebook now, it's only the Python integration of Jupyter Notebooks. And this looks like this, just a basic notebook where you can, once again, like safe markdown your code. You can have different also you know, languages that you could use in, in a Jupyter Notebook. and the way how it works, once again, just a client, a server that is going to serve your Jupyter Notebook, and you interact with something called the, the kernel. And in this case, the kernel is pretty much what would execute or um, you, you know anything you know, that you send to it. And it's pretty much integrated with different you know kernels. In this case, once again, you can use uh, Python, R, and Spark. And you can use this with anything. As long as you can connect to a you know, data uh, repository, you can just start using any languages through Jupyter Notebooks as well. So 
what can you do with that? So you can start enriching your data. So this is something that I couldn't do with the, you know, basics of, for example, the help. Like I wanted to do something like this, for example, user-defined functions. When in this case, I'm trying to grab information from Sysmon Event ID 10, trying to get the granted access values, which will tell me the access rights that were requested to, to open a handle to a process. So I just build a you know, basic Python script that would allow me to translate the you know bit mask into its you know, specific access rights you know that were you know requested. So as you can see with Jupyter notebooks and some Python code, I can start implementing that into, for example, some like basic SQL logic. I can filter my data, summarize it, and still get that additional context that you did not get, for example, with Sysmon by itself. Right. And at the end I can start correlating this. I can start filtering for specific things that I'm looking for, for example, in this case, I was just doing a basic validation, like if a process is requesting the process create threat access right inside of the whole bitmask, if the whole granted access uh, code that you get with Sysmon, you can also validate that with an event ID 8, for example. So that's the type of things that, you know, you need that freedom, the flexibility to complement what you already have, you know, with your sims. And at the end, once again, you can also, you know, add visualizations to it. And it's a very robust way to start also documenting and telling the story about your analysis. So now Wait, we move. Sorry, to- one sec, Roberto. Yep. You've done amazing. We want to say farewell to those people who had to leave at the top of the hour. I want you to keep going. I think everybody else here wants you to keep yeah, going. I was going to say the exact same thing. This whole session will be recorded and shared. I know some people had to drop, but Roberto, go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So now, yeah. So now, you know, so now that we understand you know, what it is that we can use to start getting into the analysis piece of my, you know, threat research methodology, anything like that. Then I started moving into some of the documentation. Now, how can I start documenting or telling the story about my analysis? And this is where the 300 playbook now comes into place, which is a project that allows you to integrate with all these technologies like Jupyter Notebooks, like, you know, Mordor data sets. And I start using things like OSIM also in order to understand what telemetry you're collecting. And in my opinion, like this is where also you start thinking now, what are the most efficient way that I can first document my research, but two, how can I share this, right? How can I just have everything that I've done and, you know, give it to somebody else and, and, and feel as if they were the ones also going through the process and not just sharing a screenshot of, of a dashboard or, or just sharing a query without the output. You know, this is what I started, you know, working into, into this project. And uh, the interesting thing is that the 300 playbook was my first project ever before even help actually 300 playbook was like the first thing that i started building when i joined a financial institution and the question that i had was are we documenting all these things that we're doing and how can we just document it and then i just created a github repo i didn't know what github was as much at that time and i just started you know writing a couple of things in markdown and the project has evolved a lot now now the project has a jupyter notebook backend so pretty much there is a website that if you go to that link at the bottom you can go to you know 300 playbook.com and it has also a jupyter notebook it's called now a jupyter book application on top of this so first i can share all my jupyter notebooks to a website and at the same time you can get all this input all this output all this markdown all these visualizations and 
I can actually now share everything in an organized way. And the project, once again, if you go to the, the link at the bottom, for example, this is what I put together for Dominic from MDSEC Lab when he was working on um, a couple of things. I think it was a WMI uh, event subscriptions to through active script consumers. And, and to me, it's like, man, that would be awesome if we can share also Jupyter Notebook, a data set from Mordor. And, and that's kind of like why in my opinion, was like a validation in how easy it was to first you know, deploy an environment, collect the data, and then start using things like Jupyter Notebooks through the 300 Playbook project so I can now share everything with the community and they have the whole you know, research out there. And that takes us to the pretty much final step, which now to me, it's like, all right, so the projects are cool out there. I can start documenting a lot of things. I can share data. I can share analytics where I can ingest the data and then validate that the analytic works. Like I'm proving to you that the analytic works, but now how can I start sharing this with more people? And that's the last step once again, that in our threat, you know, research modeling or methodology, sometimes we uh, skip, right? And that's just normal, right? Sometimes you might feel that it's not good enough, right? But let me tell you that anything that you do, uh, if you get to the point where you're sharing some data and some analytics, share it because there is always, always somebody out there that will benefit from it. So I wanted to make that my last step. And for me, I, I got a couple of things. It has to be practical, modular, has to be flexible, has to be also SIM agnostic. Because to me, if I start sharing queries from one specific SIM, then I limit myself to whatever that SIM is provided to me from an analytics perspective, like capabilities to analyze data perspective. And number two, I'm not also getting the feedback from other users that use a different SIM. So to me, I was trying to make it semi-agnostic, keep the logic out there and allow the community also to get the feedback out there, right? And that's pretty much what the three projects to me started kind of like make sense. Like they are mapped to one specific area of the threat research pipe. And then to me, it's like, okay, so now how can I start, for example, if I talk about Jupyter Notebooks with somebody else in the community, they would say, I do not know how to use that. I don't know how to deploy it. And I'm wasting my time trying to figure out how to deploy a Jupyter Notebook. So I just started doing some research and I found this amazing project called Binder Hub. And Binder Hub is a project from the community Binder. And what they do is they pack together all these tools from the cloud, uh, tools that they use in the cloud. And what they do is uh, you can have a Docker image, for example, in your GitHub repository. In this case, I have it in the 300 playbook. And that Docker image, what it does, it's going to be uh, sent to, you know, to Binder Hub. Binder Hub is going to check if the Docker image exists. If it does not exist, then it uses repo you know, to Docker to create this like, Jupyter Notebook um, pod, like this server in Kubernetes in the cloud. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, that's, a, that's just a lot of cloud stuff. I'm paying for a lot of things. Uh, this is actually free. This is like free infrastructure for pretty much open source you know, research. And at the end of the day, you can have this service deploying the notebook for you. And at the end of the day, we can start sharing like all this data with all these notebooks to anybody out there. And all you have to do is click a button, for example. And the, the, the outcome of, of all this is that it's pretty much something like this that was shared at the beginning of this webinar, where you can have, for example, there is an account, the 300 Playbook or 100 Playbook Twitter account, which packs all this information, shares it out there with the community, and then, you know, we just expect some feedback and also to improve the, the context. But you get all these resources just like that for free and expediting the simulation aspect of things, giving you data and giving you also a way that you can analyze the data again and you can be creative with it. 
So at the end of the day, the way how this works, if you go to a Jupyter Notebook, I'm sorry, 300 Playbook webpage, and you can access, in this case, you access the lateral movement notebook that I put together for research with Dominic. And you can go on the top and there is a button there that says Binder. And when you click on it, it just pretty much take you to Binder. And since I already deployed 300 Playbook Docker image to Binder, then Binder understands that the server has been already created. And all it does is just downloads that into in their own infrastructure, and then it launches the server. And once it does that, you pretty much have a Jupyter Notebook in the cloud. And if you see on the top, on the, on the search bar, that's not your local host and, and you know, specific port. That's like a, a specific link to a cloud provider that provides all those credits and all that infrastructure to the Binder project. So those are also organizations that are helping these efforts to share things with the community and share this repeatable, repeatable analysis and you know, documentation. So once you do that, then you're going to get to a Jupyter Notebook. That's the same thing that you get. And it's a very interactive interface, right? So you can pretty much go through every single uh, cell. You can run it again, and it's going to give you, of course, the same results. But at the end of the day, once again, since this is interactive, you can actually create a new cell and explore more data and say, you know what, Roberto, you missed this other event. So, you know, can we still use it? I will be happy to hear that. And I would just update the, the of course, the document and, and of course, you know, add your name in it and say, thank you so much for sharing that thing because I didn't know about that. And that's the goal. Like, I don't want to say this is what you need to learn only and go with it and apply it. To me, it's more like, this is what I was able to put together in a few hours. And if you have something else that we can add to it, I would love to hear about it. But the main piece in here is how you can provide interactive interfaces with you know, pre-recorded data sets, analytics that makes sense, you know, tool agnostic, like sim agnostic. And at the same time where you can just click on it, access it through a website, and then just go with it. So you don't have to be an engineer to deploy all these things. Everything is pretty much done for you. And that's what I do in the back end under the hood. It's me testing, it's me documenting things, it's me just trying to make sure that all this makes sense, updating Jupyter books in the back end of the website, updating the tools configurations and tuning auditing for Mortal Labs. And at the end, what you see is pretty much this, like this is the, the output. And that's what I had. Uh, we went over 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but that's pretty much like the whole thing, how some of these projects fit into the, the, the whole, you know, threat research, you know, methodology, you know, basic steps, you know, that I talked about at the beginning. Let me just go back to it real quick. Roberto, somebody asked, like, I think it be good to step back to like explain the uh, exploration that you can do like with OSIM or with Mordor. Somebody asked like, where do you, what do I, what do you yeah. recommend to start with? Right. Take a step back, like, and explain, you know, even from like your phone or whatever, what you can do with Mordor or OSIM and that exploration of the data and maybe why you chose to, chose to create OSIM, right. As a data schema and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so first, starting from an OSINT perspective, um, I feel that also based on some experience and also my own constraints that I had with understanding data, we all build all these analytics out there. We all share them with the community, but most of them are focused on the same, most of the time are focused on the same event fields, on the same events. And I always ask myself first, what else can I use you know, from that event? Is there anything else that would allow me to add more context to my query? And that was one of the first things that I started you know, asking myself 
And, and for example, are there any other data sources that I could add on the top of that? And of course, if you want to start understanding data from different providers, not just Windows, you have to open like so many different tabs to understand the data. Now, from a business perspective, like trying to take this now to from a consulting perspective, every time I would go to an organization, the amount of knowledge that security analysts would have beyond just even 4688 and 4624 from Windows security, it was not you know, up there to, to actually build more queries. So to me, it's like having a data wiki first, it, it, it's a big step for an organization where you document not just built-in telemetry, but also telemetry that you get from your own commercial tools. I, I've talked to a lot of security analysts that they did not even understand the specific events that you get from an EDR solution and how you can use them to correlate it. So OSIM allows you to first document those things. We're doing our best to document as much as we can. And two, allows you to also see some of the standardization efforts, like you know, building common information models or common data models that, that, that would allow somebody to understand how you can apply it in your organization. And I think that the beauty of OSIM is, is community-based and it's community-driven. So you have people like Nate and other experts on doing standardizations of data, transforming and enriching data. And then they just pretty much like share their knowledge through OSIM and say, hey, this makes sense from a common information model. And this is how I would name those fields for standardization purposes. And then the third piece of OSIM is OSIM also starts documenting some of the data modeling that you would do mapped to an adversary behavior. So for example, if the adversary modifies a registry, there is a lot of things that happen in, you know, under the hood. So how can we document that in a way that somebody can, can understand it? So OSIM also gives you these like tables. Right now it's an Excel sheet, but we're moving it to YAML and then to, to other formats to be easy to ingest and consume. Um, and, and so you get also that information that behind an adversary action, there is telemetry. So what telemetry you can use is something that OSIM provides. So OSIM is like a three sub-modules project. And so when we talk about now Mordor and how do we use that in Mordor, once again, is to understand my data. Every time I analyze a Mordor data set, well, not every time, but most of the time, I would find an event that I just didn't know about. And I will have to either document it in my data wiki or I already probably documented it and I didn't even know about. So I can just go back to it and then see if there's any any other event that I can correlate with. So that's what you need something like uh, OSIM, which hits in the three main points for a data analyst. Before you even create a query, you need to understand your schema, you need to understand also how it's standardized in your environment, and you need to understand what other events can be used to correlate, you know, to add more context to your query. And yeah, so I hope that that answers some of the questions into how I use OSIM into Mordor. Yeah, I mean, I find I find myself like I always told Roberto like with OSIM, I said like even if the schema you know never catches on because there's other quote unquote schemas out there for security data or log sources, right? Like OSIM is one of the only places that actually provides log examples of the original you know field name and the original value. As an analyst, like I never worked. I only ended up building a sim like out of necessity for myself because what I was using, you know, limited creativity, right? And I would say like your sim or whatever, like your sim or your tools and these things, right, should be only limited to your own creativity, not to, you know, some technical constraint, right? But I always mm-hmm. found myself like 
going to the original log source as an analyst constantly like having like a printout you know of that let's say like a windows event like what fields does that windows event provide and osim to repeat myself like even if it never catches on or as a schema like having those log sources documented are invaluable in so many ways right people people are documenting stuff that there's not even links for on microsoft's you know pages or zeke's pages or something like that or some of the additional zeke plugins um that are third party that they don't have listed you got to go and read the zeke formerly known as bro whatever you got to go and read the zeke code to then go look at what fields are enabled then you got to go run that see the example values like all that sort of stuff is provided that that you can't put you know the amount of time the amount of effort and how valuable that is you can't put yeah. a price like on that as an analyst as a researcher somebody exploring roberto's built this stuff you know you do it from your phone and i've i've been known to maybe write sigma rules from my phone so yeah uh, yeah. it's having more door right like just just take my phone sitting somewhere open one tab start looking at the more data sets and i write a sigma rule so you know five minutes i'll get to myself that is a sickness that is not normal (laughs) <laughs> what what uh what Nate's referring to it's also so valuable. Like I was able, for example, I'm from Peru. Um and I was able to go to Peru last year and I was talking to, to a few people in there um that were interested in cybersecurity. And when I started actually talking about, for example, Docker containers to deploy Jupyter notebooks and deploy other tools in general that I use, um, they were like, Okay, can I use that Docker image? And I was like, sure. And my Jupyter notebook Docker image is like, you know, three gigs of data. Um, you know, to, you know, to download, and that's already compressed. Um, and so when you do that, right, you know, they were trying to do that. And even in my house in Peru, like the internet is terrible. Uh, you know, you have to, you know, pay large amounts of money to to get a really, really, really good internet. And and so all all these friends, I like, couldn't even use the tools at all. And I was like, you know what? Why don't we just go straight to the piece that I believe is going to be more beneficial? So instead of trying to figure out how to download a Docker image and how to even bypass our quota on our bandwidth and all this stuff you know why don't we just you know use for example the 300 playbook so i did the same thing that i just showed you here which you go to on a specific uh playbook in the project through the website and then you click on binder and then you can get to the the notebook and you can do it you know hey, the Roberto, website. I mean, up, but we're coming up to a hard cut so yeah. i'm gonna ask jason to jump on with this Thanks, everybody, for hanging out. Um, we will hang out a little bit longer after Jason jumps on and, and rolls us out. I want to thank everybody for showing up today. Sorry for interrupting there, Roberto. But, Jason, if you could send us out, and we'll hold on uh, for a little post-show banter for a few minutes. Yeah. And, Roberto, wow. Dude, wow. <laughs> on behalf of everyone. <laughs> thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for the pre-show banter, for the recording, and for being here. We appreciate it. And hopefully if you watched us on YouTube, you'll join us for the live ones. And if not, thank you so much for being here. If you ever need a pen test, red team, threat hunt, or blue team, or any of the other stuff that we do at Black Hills, you always know where to find us. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jordan Kim for post-show banter. So if you all want to head out, feel free to head out. Attendees, thank you so much for being here. Um, but we normally wrap up for like a couple of minutes when, we, when we're done. That was incredibly dense, and yeah. I don't—I don't really think you slowed down at all. You—you you maintained a very steady, 
Mm. <laughs> Cruising speed and altitude at about 30,000. <laughs> I, I, There's a lot of info in here, man. Holy yeah, cow. I thought that was good pace, actually. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of, once again, like, there's a, even though this is like a high level overview, <laughs> it goes through to a lot of the also things uh, put in place with you just like this passionate about like, trying to do something that would actually work and that I could share. Um, it's, it's, it's the goal. And, and I think that uh, hopefully, you know, you guys could, you know, see that, you know, through the, the conversation totally. and, and all that. Roberto, so, yeah. you should do a course. You should do one of our, we call it a four day course, four, four hour session. Dude, people would, they love walking through this and demo. Yeah. There's a bunch of people out there that were basic. Like, how do I, I'm really more basic. How do I get started in this? Like, it's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point, CJ. Roberto, you got you got one topic to pick here for a basic analyst to start. Where do you send them? Great. So, I, so I I believe that it depends also on the. For example, if I tell you, I believe that you can also start with just basic understanding data documentation behind the data. Um, you can start understanding some of those. I would say behaviors that you'll be able to catch, right? So going through OSIM, some dictionaries, some of the data modeling piece, you, you will be able to to get to understand, oh, okay, so this event will be mapped to this potential action, right? Not 100% because everything could be bypassed, but at least you get that, right? But some people learn by just doing it, right? So I, I would say that, you know, something like the Mordor Labs, just like having everything deploy and then going through some of the walkthroughs that I have as well would allow you to now you know, generate your own data sets, right? So some people want that. Some other people just want to jump directly to the Jupyter Notebook, and that's just fine with that. And w- one example is my brother, for example, because I mentioned that before. He's all about data analysis. So he's like, let me look at OSM because I want to understand data. And whenever you're done simulating that thing, I would love to analyze it. So I, I would say that it depends. And those three projects give you that flexibility to, to, to you know, because to me, there is not one way to say this is where you start right now it is like that's actually very powerful roberto because everyone thinks that there's just one linear approach and it it it, it clearly isn't yeah jordan's one project that brings all your projects together we didn't even get to talk we didn't even get to talk about a lot so yeah i know i would add to that guys you know, one of the ways that really brought us all together was Jordan and I working on a class and, and honestly having to like wrap our hands and arms around a bunch of OSS. And, you know, I think we've raised interesting point here is all this is available to you, right? The groups have gone out and made this publicly available. Not everybody learns that way. And Jordan and I have created a class that uses these same tools that if you would feel more comfortable, you know, being guided through it at a slower pace, we have a course that's available. It's going to be taught at Wildwest Hackenfest in Deadwood and virtual, and also San Diego. Check out the Wildwest Hackenfest website about that if, you want, if you're interested in that. If you would feel more comfortable being guided through it, you know those opportunities exist as well. If if you don't need that, you know guiding, you can jump right in. Like Roberto said, go on, get look at those projects and, and jump right in wherever you feel comfortable. Do we have like a minute, uh, just a few seconds to say say something else? Or we seconds, have- please, man. Seconds. <laughs> so, one thing that I learned also, and this is where I, I believe the projects you know, reflect that a little bit, is that something that I read somewhere in English before I even 
was able to understand English you know, that much. So it was something where if you tell a monkey, for example, to climb a tree, you know, they would do it right away or they would just do it by nature, right? But if you tell a fish to climb the tree, the, the fish is going to be like, I'm going to climb the tree. And I think that that's the same thing that we apply to, to, to these projects where not everybody's the same, right? There, there are different ways to, you know, to approach something. I'm, I'm more, you know, visual guy, for example, right? For all my presentations, I like visualizations. And I think that's the way how I learn. Even when you start thinking about the tools behind all these projects, like, for example, Jupyter Notebooks, it's so flexible to integrate Python, R, Java, Scala, PySpark, APIs for Python through, through Apache Spark. That's the flexibility that our community needs. And when you're locked to one technology that says, this is what you need to use, this is the search bar you're going to use, and this is the only schema that you're going to see ever, you are limiting those fish <laughs> to climb the, you know, climb the trees. And, and I believe that there's when you start missing opportunities about talent that can do more than just sitting and trying to, to run a basic Boolean query. They can actually be you know, better at correlating data. So you need to provide that type of technology. And these projects do that, like give you that flexibility. Like if you don't know, for example, how to emulate an adversary, how to simulate an adversary, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, right? It doesn't make you less or, or more, right? To know about that. But, so, but if I can help you to get to the data analysis piece, that's amazing because you can take it from there and you can just do you know, wonders you know, with a data set. And I think that that's the main goal behind all these projects and behind also you know, the OTR, the Open Thread Research Movement that I'm putting together, which is to bring all these researchers that want to have that freedom to, to operate and, and do research and contribute back to the community. Yep. Nate and Roberto, thank you guys. Holy cow. This is... <laughs> I am. I'm telling you, I'm mind blown. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I think that's about it for time, guys. Jason, you want to lead us out one last time? Yep. So at this point, we're going to hit the end the webinar button, and I will take care of it. And thank you all so much for joining us for the pre-show banter. We had a great time today, and uh, appreciate everyone hanging out with us. Roberto, Thanks, Nate, you're welcome back anytime. Bye. Right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I am ending the webinar. Nate? Did yeah. You hit the start Can you undo it? Did you hit the start broadcast button? Yes, sir. Mm. Oh. We cannot unring that bell. Oh, boy.